Well, good morning and welcome to Sunday School here at FBC. Um, we're on class two of this new series. Well, we'll be w- w- working through a book by Richard Belcher entitled Prophet, Priest, and King, The Roles of Christ in the Bible and Our Roles Today. So class two brings us into, it's a continuation of what Andrew taught last week, The Importance of Prophet, Priest, and King, part two. So I'll start with just a review of what Andrew covered last week, and then after that, we'll get into new material. Okay? So the importance of prophet, priest, and king. So I know last week, you guys, you talked about prophet, priest, and king um, before Israel was a formal nation at Mount Sinai. Right? So you saw that Abraham is called a prophet in Genesis 20, which is the first time that that word prophet is used in, in Scripture. So I'm, I'm not sure if you've uh, considered or thought about Abraham as a prophet, um, but we, we do see that in Genesis 20. In Genesis 15, it says the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. And then in that phrase, the word of the Lord came to is common for describing prophetic revelation. Right, so you see that in Hosea 1, Joel 1, Jonah 1, Micah 1, and the word of the Lord came too. Now, we, it's easier to think about Joel or Hosea or Micah even as, as prophets, but the same language is used of Abraham and sort of and puts him in that category as well. As God spoke to prophets regularly um, in visions, so he did with Abraham. You see that in Numbers 12, 6, Obadiah 1, Nahum 1. Um, Abraham also acts as a priest and building altars when he travels throughout the land of Canaan. You see that in Genesis 12. So there's this, there, there are descriptions of Abraham's life and things that he does throughout his life that um, put him under the category or qualify him as a prophet. <clears throat> um, after the flood, we also see this, some uh, certain um, um, identity markers of a prophet um, given to, to, to Noah or, or spoken of about in, in relation to Noah. After the flood, Noah acts as a uh, priest and builds an altar to the Lord and sacrifices burnt offerings. So God responds to this act of worship by establishing his covenant with Noah even. So again, we're thinking about these roles of prophet, priest, and king before Israel was uh, made a formal nation. So we see it in Abraham, we see it in Noah. Uh, Job functioned as a priest to his family by offering burnt offerings on behalf of each of his children in case they had sinned against God. You see that in Job 1.5. Job uh, performed this function in his role as their father and head of his family with the goal to consecrate them. That language is also used of priests throughout scripture, this uh, consecrating uh, factor. The burnt offerings would restore their relationship with God and bring them into a state of holiness fit for service. So that's, that's interesting as well to think about Job even as uh, a priest. He's offering burnt offerings, 
uh, on behalf of he and his family and their sins that God would accept them. Right? So, again, this identity marker as a priest now given to, to Job. Now, this is review, so I'm not going to get into all the details of this because um, Andrew would have covered this last week. So if you want to uh, get into the details more and walk through that subject, you can listen to last week's lesson. Um, so we talked about prophet, priest, and king before Israel. And then you also talked about the origin of prophet, priest, and king in Genesis 1 through 3. So Adam uh, was given the role of ruling and exercising dominion, kingship, which is explicitly stated in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. <clears throat> so there's this language here that's used in Genesis in reference to Adam and Eve is um, shown that they were given authority, they were given uh, dominion, uh, they were giving that they were given specific um, um, identity markers and character traits that showed that they were um, to rule and to uh, express the Lord's sovereign reign over everything through Him giving them specific responsibilities, even in, in the garden. So the function of human beings within God's creation is a royal one that is patterned after the God who created them. The naming of the animals, uh, the call to be fruitful and to multiply, to spread the image of God throughout the earth is what that is, to be fruitful and multiply. The Garden of Eden is a special place of God's presence that foreshadows the later tabernacles. Now, that is a fascinating study, and Andrew got into this a little last week, but the Garden of Eden being a special place of God's presence. Well, God walked with them. Um, God creates, and then he creates the Garden of Eden, and then he puts uh, Adam into the garden. And that garden, that garden of Eden being the special place of God's presence was the place where God would walk with them. And we'll talk about this a little later where that, that language of walking with them assumes that it was a, it was a normal pattern for God to uh, dwell with them, especially in this Garden of Eden that he created and put them into. And that is a sort of foreshadow of later tabernacles. And even what we see on Mount Sinai, um, the two verbs used to describe Adam's work in the garden in Genesis 2.15 are also used of the priest's work in the tabernacle. We see that in Numbers 3 and Numbers 8 and Numbers 18. The verbs are to guard, shamar, and to serve and work, avad. Adam was placed in the garden to work it and to keep it. So this language um, that's used of priest in the tabernacle and temple is also used of Adam in the garden. The same um, Hebrew language to 
to keep, to guard, to work. All right, so on just a surface reading of these, of, of Genesis, or even some of these um, passages in Numbers, you, you don't sort of originally see that. It doesn't sort of jump out off the page. You won't see in Genesis where it says, Adam was a priest, or the Garden of Eden was a temple. But uh, the Bible uh, doesn't always, or even often, uh, it's not always that, um, that, that, that on the surface or on the nose. The scriptures are a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, and it takes some digging sometimes to draw out these principles and to see them. But they are, that they, they, they are there, and you see those connections as you work through some of these texts. The prophetic role of Adam and Eve can be shown in how they handle the word of God. Before creation, or before Eve's creation, God gave Adam a command. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Genesis 2, 16 to 17. So clearly this command was passed to Eve, because when the serpent approached her, questioning what God had said about eating from the fruit of the trees, eating the fruit of the trees, she responds with the command that God gave to Adam. Sort of. <laughs> and you would have talked about this last week. Um, and the response that Eve gives to the serpent, it's not exactly how it was communicated to Adam, which is how it should have been communicated to her. There were some things, something added and something sort of taken away. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't precisely what God said. And in that, that adding to and taking away, there is there's something going on in the heart where there's a questioning as a serpent questions God's wisdom. Now there's in, in Eve a, a, a questioning or a mis, a mis interpreting of what the Lord said. And so the, the serpent and his deception and his devices are now sort of held up against the wisdom of God. And there's a choice. You can believe what God said, Eve, Adam, who would have been there, or you can believe the serpent. And her response shows us um, what she believed and Adam with her. Right. So instead of trusting in God and using his command against Satan's lie, confusion concerning what God said results in disobedience. Confusion concerning what he said results in disobedience. Adam and Eve reject God's words and are disobedient to God's commands, which leads to God's judgment. It's, it's interesting that um, when you think about uh, the word of God being rightly divided, and you think about false teachers, usually, I mean, there are the false teachers who are, they're more blatant in their uh, foolishness, but usually false teaching is imperceptible. There's, there's something about it that something's off, you can't always quickly identify what it is. There's just a subtle change there. Um, and Satan came with a subtle change. It wasn't God's lying to you. It was, well, did he say that precisely? And the response should have been, he said this precisely. And before that, 
why are you in this garden? And before that, nothing should be in here that isn't um, um, giving God proper glory. Right. And we'll we'll talk about that more in, in a little bit. But deception and false teaching usually just has a hint of falsehood and a lot of truth. You see that here in the garden as well. <clears throat> um, okay, so any, any questions? So that's, that's review, but any questions before we get into new material? Again, those things would have been covered last week. So if you want to walk through some of those a little more, listen to Andrew's teaching from, from last week. Okay, so that's all review. Now let's get into new, new material for this morning. The impact of God's judgment on the roles of prophet, priest, and king. You should have it on your your hand out there. The judgment of God has a profound effect on creation and on the first couple, of course, and on the mandate that God gave them to fulfill in Genesis 3. So how does the judgment of God affect their prophetic role, Adam and Eve's prophetic role? Adam and Eve should have been mediating on God's, uh, mediating God's, God's law. Let me have someone uh, go to Genesis 2, and we're going to look at 16 through 17. Genesis 2, 16 to 17. <clears throat> Can read it? Uh, yes, please, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Now, the exchange between the serpent and Eve focuses on the specifics of the law. God was clear. What did he say? Genesis 2, 17, Barani just read for us. You must not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of it and evil. And when you eat of it, you will certainly die. When the serpent tempts Eve, notice how he again tweaks the command. Did God really say you must not eat of, the, of any tree in the garden? No, he did not say that. Adam and Eve were free to eat of the tree, uh, eat, to eat from any tree in the garden, just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right, so there were, and Andrew mentioned this last week, more restrictions uh, put on what God said than what he actually gave to them. Notice how when Eve responds to the initial temptation, she fails to repeat God's law specifically and correctly. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God said, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, the midst of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Genesis 3, 2 to 3. God didn't say anything about touching the fruit. God also said that they would certainly die, whereas Eve her language seems to soften what God says here. It seems to soften the curse that when um, that she will uh, surely die is what God said. <clears throat> the fall reveals that the couple failed to live up to their identity as images, as the image of God. So now, instead of receiving the blessing of God, Adam and Eve experienced the judgment of God which includes being cast out of the garden. Now, 
They are now separated from God. Um, and because of that separation, they'll be ignorant of his purposes unless he reveals himself to them. Rejecting the word of God leaves human beings in their own or rather on their own to establish the meaning of their lives. So they reject God's word. God, God has revealed himself to them. He's told them what to do. They reject God by believing the serpent instead of God. And with that rejection of God comes a hindrance on their ability to know what God's perfect will is. And this is what has happened throughout all humanity. The spread of Adam and Eve's, um, their, uh, their, their corrupt nature now on our corrupt nature. It's not just that we um, do wrong things with our hands, our eyes, our feet. It's that we think wrong things, we feel wrong things, we don't interpret reality rightly because of the fall and our corrupt nature. So there's a, there's a widespread impact of the fall and there's a deep impact of the fall. Uh, we don't even think or reason rightly because of the fall. <clears throat> so sin affects our ability to interpret the law properly and to apply it properly. Ultimately, they believe their way was better than God's way. All right, so their role as uh, their, their prophetic role has been has been hindered. And if you read Genesis uh, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, um, you'll see even more so how they're they're communicating of what God said to them, to their descendants. is just all messed up now. There's there's no clear um, God said there's everyone doing what's right in their own eyes and left to their own interpretation, um, which is just shows this vast corruption. Okay, what about their priestly role, Adam and Eve's priestly role? Adam and Eve should have rid the sanctuary of Eden from defilement. They should have exterminated the pest when he first raised the question against God's wisdom. The serpent embodies evil and rebellion. So simply put, it is the greatest expression of uncleanness. So he should have been dealt with, which is the role of, of the priest to keep the, um, the temple um, holy, to keep any uncleanness out. In Genesis 3.8, God came to deal with and judge Adam and Eve's sin. But we should assume that God would have been in the garden with them on a regular basis. Man was created to be an unbroken communion with God. <clears throat> but we know that, or rather we know that because what Christ actually restores us to. Knowing what Adam should have done um, is more easily seen by looking at what Christ actually does. Right? So... Where Adam fails, Christ succeeds. We were meant to be in communion, unbroken fellowship with God. And we know that because what is Christ doing? What is he bringing us into? Unbroken, perfect fellowship with God. Sin corrupts our fellowship with one another, our fellowship with God, um, our own wickedness, our own thoughts. But Christ is bringing us into that perfect state, which Adam would have done if he had obeyed perfectly in the garden. <clears throat> the garden was also a place of God's special presence. 
Genesis 3.8 uses the verb to walk, which I talked about a minute ago, which can imply a regular occurrence. So now, instead of a relaxed existence under the covering of God's presence, Adam and Eve do what? They retreat. They hide themselves from the presence of God. <clears throat> As if they could, right? <laughs> Scripture is clear. There's nowhere to go where God is not. You can't ascend to the highest heavens or some meditative state where God is not. You can't ascend to the lowest hells or get low enough where God is not there. Of course, they couldn't hide from God. <clears throat> but this is how sin corrupts. It makes us think that we can hide from God. It makes us cover ourselves with whatever we choose to cover ourselves with um, to hide our shame and our guilt. <clears throat> but thank God that, praise be to God that he's omniscient and omnipotent and timelessly eternal. <clears throat> we don't want to hide from him. Adam and Eve's feeble attempt to cover themselves with fig trees is inadequate. Um, it cannot cover their guilt or their shame. They need God to cover them with animal skins, which implies that blood must be shed for guilt and that shame for shame to be covered. Also, instead of the privilege of guarding to and attending to the garden on God's behalf, Adam and Eve are cast out. Now, the place of God's special presence is guarded by what? A cherubim, right? With a flaming sword. The cherubim are usually associated with worship and praise throughout Scripture. The flaming sword represents the judgment and protection of God's holiness and majesty. And the study of the cherubim in Scripture in itself is just really interesting. Uh, cherubim are used in the tabernacle in the wilderness. And when Solomon built the temple following God's instruction, of course, he had two cherubim placed inside the inner sanctuary or the most holy place in the temple. And their wings were spread over the Ark of the Covenant. So imagine this um, uh, cherubim with wings spread. Uh, the Bible says it would have been 15 feet over the Ark of the Covenant. Huge, these huge angelic beings. <clears throat> they were spread over the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. They were also a visible reminder of God in, in his guarded but abiding presence with his people. After the fall in Genesis 3, man is kept at a distance now unless God himself condescends to their lowest state and makes a way for us to enjoy his presence again. So these cherubim that are in the temple in the most holy place over the Ark of the Covenant, a picture of God's presence in Genesis, they're standing before the garden, this place of God's special presence guarding, keeping, protecting the holiness and the majesty of God. <clears throat> it's really fascinating to think about. And you see these angelic beings again in, in Hebrews with a similar function. <clears throat> okay, so that's the prophetic role, the priestly role. Now, what about the kingly role <clears throat> of Adam and Eve and how uh, God's judgment affects that? Adam and Eve did not protect the garden from opposition 
and they did not exercise rule over the serpent by disputing what he said and casting him out. They let him linger. They engaged in a conversation with him, which says something that there are so many implications from the dialogue with the serpent and Adam and Eve, but it just says something about, I I think about Proverbs where it says, I think it's Proverbs, uh, can a man hold fire close to his chest and not be burned? Uh, It's a reference to to sin, to to wickedness. Um, There's no dialoguing with sin or the flesh or wickedness. There's no um, sort of uh, polite conversation where uh, sin and wickedness says, well, did God say? And you say, well, let me think of it. I think he said, no, there has to be a crushing of sin, a cutting off of the head, a hedging off, a fleeing from. Um, there, there can't be conversation with sin and wickedness and our own uh, sinful pleasures. That has to be cut off, it has to be rooted up and cast out or else that subtle change of God's word, of God's commands, of God's law, it, it infiltrates and it corrupts. <clears throat> so we just have to be on guard against that. Adam and Eve should have cast the serpent out. They, should have, they shouldn't have been disputing with him. They should have been casting him out. They should have stopped the serpent from slithering into the garden of Eden in the first place. Remember that part of um, man's kingly role, Adam and Eve, <clears throat> was to be fruitful and multiply as well. The exercise of dominion becomes difficult because of how sin's curse affects the bearing of children in Genesis 3.16. So the mandate to multiply and fill the earth now comes with sorrow and pain. Right? Um, women get epidurals because of the curse. <laughs> There's pain associated with it, right? It helps to curve some of that pain that comes from the curse and the fall. But it's not just physical pain at childbirth. Remember that when God curses the serpent, he says he will put enmity between the woman and woman's seed and the offspring of the serpent. Enmity between the two seeds, which begins in Genesis 4, it includes hostile warfare. Is that the AC? Oh, is that new? I think it's upstairs. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's like seems super loud now. Um, it includes um, hostile warfare between the sea's descendants, right? Cain murders his brother Abel, and part of his punishment is to be a fugitive and a wanderer, separated from God and other family members who represent the godly line. Now, it's important that worship is mentioned when referring to the godly community in Genesis 4. So turn to Genesis 4. Let's see if we can trace some of this. What does this enmity look like? What is this, the, uh, the, the, the cursed line and the godly line? Genesis 4, 25 to 26. It says, actually, let me have someone read that for us, nice and loud. Genesis 4, 25 to 26.
Okay, thank you. So this is contrasted. <clears throat> well, first, let me go back. Eve uh, conceives again, has a son. She says, we'll name him Seth, for God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. Uh, this isn't offspring used loosely, um, simply loosely to talk about children. This is offspring related to God's curse on the serpent, which says um, between your offspring and her offspring, there's going to be strife. <clears throat> she says, instead of Abel, Cain killed Abel. Here's Seth. God has appointed another offspring. There's a hope. There's some type of anticipation. She's hoping maybe he's the one. The one that will that God said in his in the context of cursing the serpent that will crush the head of the serpent. Is it him? Abel's dead. Maybe it's Seth. There is an anticipation there. Um, and in verse 26, it says, at, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is contrasted with the uh, ungodly line. That is um, Cain's ungodly line, rather, um, that is not calling upon the name of the Lord. It says that in relation to specifically um, Seth and um, this line. <clears throat> so there's a, there's a hope that through this chosen line, one will come to battle the enemy and be victorious. Right? It's, it's pointing back to Genesis 3.15. <clears throat> okay, let's, let's pause there before we go to the next section. <clears throat> so any, any questions, any thoughts, thoughts come to mind? <clears throat> Have you thought about um, some of these categories as uh, Adam and Eve as prophet, priest, and king and their functions? <clears throat> Are these things newer to you? Have you heard them before? Can you say that again? Uh, it's another question. <laughs> How does the role of a priest relate to the work that God gave Adam to do in the garden? What are your thoughts on that? <clears throat> What, is, what are the connections you can think of between the priests, as we normally think of them, and the temple, right? Israel's priest and Adam in the garden. right yep. anything else all right so those are some implications of that special place the garden being this special place god's presence <clears throat> what else would there be an aspect of representation as part of this yeah okay. yep I'm not sure exactly. elaborate I, I don't know <laughs> uh, well you're on the right track <laughs> the priest 
mean, not in a Catholic, not in a small, uh, Catholic sense, but sure. in, in some sense, the priest is a, is a stand-in of sorts. Hmm. Obviously, certainly when it comes to the sacrifices. Yeah. And when Adam was formed and given dominion over the garden, uh, in, 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 by doing that, there was a sense of delegation from God of the garden to Adam. So yeah. that seems like that would be a sense of representation there. Yeah. Yep, Adam as a as a priest, and it, uh, remember I mentioned before, seeing what Christ does shows us what Adam should have did. Seeing how Adam failed shows us what Christ will do. Uh, what is Christ? So Adam, to, to your point, Jeremy, Adam as <clears throat> this priest, this representative nature of Adam as a priest. Um, what is Christ creating in believers as they bend the knee and submit? and are regenerated, he's creating, what, a priesthood of believers, right? Um, Adam, suppose, Adam being this priest, this, this representative of God, even functioning sort of as this under-shepherd of what God uh, did in creation, Adam's functioning as this role, that being corrupted through sin and the fall and judgment, and now Christ, as he is regenerating unbelievers, sinners, giving them new hearts, affections, minds, wills. Uh, scripture says that we are being made into one a temple um, and also a priesthood of believers, right? Just think about the, uh, the, the, the doctrine of the priesthood of, of all believers. Um, and you see this language over and over in Hebrews, Hebrews 12 and Hebrews 9. <clears throat> so yeah, it's a, it's a good point. Okay, let's, let's jump down to section D. Uh, the mission of Israel and prophet, priest, and king. So we looked at Adam and Eve. Now let's look at Israel as prophet, priest, and king. So Israel was called by God to fulfill a particular mission to the nations, which can be described with the categories of prophet, priest, and king. Exodus 19, 5 to 6 states that there was this mission in place even before the establishment of the Mosaic law. <clears throat> Exodus 19, turn there and we'll read verses five to six. Someone want to read that for us? Exodus 19, five to six. Kyle. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Okay, thank you. So three terms are used to describe Israel's unique covenant relationship. Treasured possession, kingdom of priests, and holy nation. Now before we go there let's step back and sort of set the scene a little bit here so benjamin glad he helpfully brings out um some some concepts under this under the umbrella um, in his book from adam and israel to the church he says despite the fall the goal of genesis 1 to 2 remains intact god dwelling intimately with his restored people in the new creation 
his commission or his commission to Adam and Eve to fulfill the earth with godly offspring is never actually shelved. The same commission is passed to Noah. Be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase it. That's Genesis 9, 6. So that's instruction given to Noah. Same exact language given to Adam. So Noah, a second Adam figure, is responsible to form a community of godly priests, kings, and prophets. Now listen to the language of Genesis 9, 1 to 4. How similar does this sound to Genesis 1? In Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish in the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. It's almost exact same language given to, to Adam. But like Adam, Noah failed too. The commission is then picked up and applied to Abraham. But when Abraham receives the commission, there's a shift. So the original commission is still in place, but it's couched in promises now. Adam fails. He's given the instruction. He fails. Noah's given the instruction in Genesis 9, 1 to 4. He fails. He fails in Genesis 9, 20 to 27, where he gets drunk, essentially, um, and is exposed, his, his nakedness is exposed, which um, was sinful. <clears throat> and so he fails, and now it's given to Abraham, but now associated with promises. So Genesis 17, verses 1 through 9, and Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Similar text. Um, I'm going to sort of patch them together and read, um, and I just want you to listen for... Um, how these, uh, the commission given is now couched in a series of promises. <clears throat> I am God Almighty, <clears throat> God says to Abram, walk before me faithfully and be blessed. This is Genesis 17, 1 to 9. Then I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will greatly increase your number. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, This is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. Again, that's Genesis 17, one to nine and Genesis 12, one to three, sort of patched together uh, to see the flow of God's promises there. Now, the imperatives walk faithfully and keep my covenant 
are met with the promises of greatly increasing Abraham's descendants and of his becoming very fruitful in the land of Canaan. The reason why these commands interlock with divine promises is because humanity is still responsible to carry out the original commission to fill the earth with God's glory. But because of the fall, humanity is unable to accomplish this task alone. God graciously promises Abraham and his descendants that he will meet his own original demand through them. The seed promised by God in Genesis 3 and progressively revealed through the Abrahamic covenant assures that the original command will actually be satisfied. But God is going to be the one to satisfy these demands. Okay. God is fulfilling his purposes to Adam and Eve, Genesis 3.15, and to Abraham in Genesis 12. He promised that Adam's descendants would be a mighty nation and God is making good on those promises. To show that this isn't a new idea, many argue that Israel's experience in Sinai parallels the creation account of Adam and Eve. One theologian, William uh, Dumbrell, he's an um, Australian biblical scholar. He looks at Adam and Eve in Israel and observes this, how they're similar. He says, Adam and Eve are created outside of Eden. Eden was formed. They were put into the garden. Israel was created outside of Canaan. They were made a nation and then brought into the promised land. Adam and Eve were created to function as kings and priests, which we looked at. Israel was created to function as kings and priests. We'll look at that in a sec here. Um, Adam and Eve, uh, their condition to stay in Eden was through law. Do, do not do. Israel's condition to stay in Canaan was through Torah. If you obey all that I command you, you'll be able to stay in and enjoy the land of promise. But if you disobey, you will be cast out. That's what exile was. Israel being cast out of the land. Lastly, Adam and Eve are exiled from Eden. Israel is exiled from Canaan. Interesting connections there. At Sinai, God creates a corporate Adam, a magnificent people, people group that is responsible for ruling as kings, worshiping as priests, and embodying God's law as prophets. Um, Someone go to Isaiah 43, 1. <clears throat> Isaiah 43, 1. Now, Isaiah 43.1 reflects back on God's creating Israel using the identical words found in Genesis 1 and 2. Isaiah 43.1. Who's there? Who wants to read that for us? Go ahead, Matt. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Again, same language we see in Genesis 1 and 2. The Lord who created and formed. This language isn't accidental. It's it's meant to point back to 
Genesis. <clears throat> Just as God created Adam and Eve and installed them in Eden, Genesis 2.8, so too he creates Israel and installs them in the promised land. Now, to go back to something I mentioned earlier, three terms are used to describe Israel's unique covenant relationship. Treasure possession, kingdom of priests, and holy nation. Treasure possession describes the close relationship that Israel will have to the Lord Yahweh. Kingdom of priests describes Israel's mediatory role towards the nations. And kingdom and, and, and as kingdom of priests, Israel seeks to extend and worship or extend the worship and presence of Yahweh. As a holy nation, Israel is supposed to personify what it means to be in relationship with Yahweh. All the laws given to Israel was to distinguish them so that they would be holy as God is holy. That they would walk in holiness as God walks, as God is, is holy. I've got more material than I have time for but I'll, I'll stop there and allow you to ask any questions. Any questions, anything, any questions or comments? Anything come to mind for you? Yeah. You know, and then like and then ultimately have it pointing pointing to the role of Christ. Yeah. Know, yeah. At that next level. Yeah, just really, yeah. Yeah, just even see that idea of uh, another Adam like figure. Mm. You know, where it's like continuing to pass down until we get to the to the last Adam. Right. Yeah, just right. Yeah, again, just really yeah, yep. really helpful. Yeah, that having that that sort of grid, so to speak, it's like like a, a blueprint for for a home. As you read scripture and you see certain things in scripture, you have that blueprint, you can say, oh, okay, I can see how that fits here, or that fits there, and it helps us to, I think, read the Bible um, with, a, with a, a stronger sort of meta-narrative. What is, what is all of scripture moving towards? What does it come from? What, what, what is it moving towards? And having some of these concepts in place helps with that. So, yeah, thank you, it's helpful. Okay, well, We'll, we'll end there, um, and then we'll pick up next week. Uh, and Kyle will be up next week, continuing to lead us through, through this. Um, prophet, priest, and king, Christ, and in our roles today. Okay, so let me pray for us and close this out. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is precious to read, to hold, to have. To, to share, to teach. Um, it, is, it is our privilege, Lord, that you would make yourself known to us. You could have separated yourself. You could have uh, remained distant. You could have started over. Um, 
but you chose to fulfill um, the stipulations of uh, a covenant which you which you made um, by your own condescending and condescension to us to reveal yourself to us and to um, reveal yourself progressively through covenants and um, as we look at prophets, priests, and king, and as we see you fulfilling these things in the person and work of Christ, um, it is our privilege, Lord, that you would choose us um, to know you and to be known by you. I pray that you would help us to live in light of that reality. Uh, help us to see and recognize that, to live as holy people as you called us to be holy, keeping in mind that um, you love us, you care for us, you uphold us, and you have um, uh, condescended to, to reveal yourself to creatures. Um, Lord, we are thankful, we love you, and we're, we're grateful for this. Bless us now, Lord, as we go into the corporate worship room to sing together, to, to pray together, to take the Lord's Supper together, to hear the word preached um, this is another privilege and opportunity that we get to fellowship with our triune God um, around the instructions and ordinances you put in place for us to enjoy that fellowship with you. Um, we thank you, Lord, for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.